No matter what happened in your life, you get a lot of love, Mike Tyson. Despite the color, where you're from, what happened. People love you, man. I just went uh, to the store the other night and one of B-Real's boys was there. Yeah, we had a good it time. Was, he's like, dog, it was the best day of my life. Mike Tyson was so fucking cool. I mean, you know, what you're doing right now, I mean, is uh, it's fucking tremendous, man. Oh man, here we are, another episode of Hot Boxing with Evan Breton and Mike Tyson. Today we have a special guest, man, a New Yorker, man. 100%. Tell him, Joey Diaz. Talk to us. What's man. happening, Talk people? Hell yeah, Joey. The champ, Mike Tyson, <coughs> straight from Cuba, 205 West 88th Street, and fucking points beyond. And then I ended up in North Bergen, New Jersey, and because my mother had a bar in Union City, but. Yeah, you know the, Jersey City? Yeah, I know Jersey City. You know Mario City. Costa? No, I used you know, to. I you used know to ringside work. gym there? No. Nah. Jersey City? Oh, by Journal Square? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ringside I used to go to Jersey Bar. City to hang out. I went to Bob Hurley's basketball camp when I was a little kid. He was a coach at, you know, his two kids played for yeah. Duke. And he had a basketball camp there. And I used to go to movie theater there. And I got stabbed there. Yeah, because that's a real crime infested yeah. neighborhood. I got stabbed there <laughs> when I went to the neighborhood. Richard I was going to the real bad neighborhood. <laughs> Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip. Yeah. And I went and got high smoking pot with my friends. And some dude cut me through a sweatshirt. So, fuck. That's what it's like. Dude. Tremendous. But it's great to be here with you it's guys. It's a war zone, buddy. But it's great it's to love. have you, man. You know, Mike and I have a lot of similarities. We both lost our mothers at the age of 16. Mm -hmm. We both got locked up. You been to Sparfit when you were a kid? What's that? You ever been to Sparfit in the Bronx when you were a kid? Where's that? Sparfit Avenue. You know, man, it's been so... a juvenile lockup? No, 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 no. I was good as a juvie. That was my shit. I was good as a juvie because you and I had something else in common. We got saved by an Italian man. Yeah. Okay, when I moved to New Jersey, the neighborhood man was Carmine Balzano, God rest his soul. And he took me into his house, even though I was Cuban. He had three, four other sons. And one of the sons died, and I kind of replaced him. So whatever the sons got, I got. That gives you a different type of feeling. It was the 70s. Ain't no, ain't no spick or no black dude going to walk into an Italian's yeah. house. But they didn't look at it like that. We got saved by somebody Italian. That's We have so many similarities. You know, you're from Brownsville. In my early years, well, to my the mentor age of is from the Bronx. He's from Arthur Avenue. Yeah, Arthur Avenue there. is still fucking kicking and shit. Yeah, <laughs> Representing Italian food like a motherfucker still. The last American slice is in Arthur Avenue now. Everybody knows that in this country, but it's always it's just, been an Italian name from the beginning, oh, hundred years beginning. ago. It's the but best. it's just, uh, it's just a pleasure to be with somebody who understands. You know, Mike Tyson was the king of New York. You know how hard that is to be the king of New York? Walk the walk, talk the talk, the king of New that York. Was, oh, thank you, brother. Thank and you. He got dethroned by Tony Soprano. You know what I'm saying? It just oh, happened. Listen, I met him once, too. Yeah. I met him once. Yeah? Yeah, um, I met Tony. James? Uh, what was it? Garfield. James Gandolfini? Yeah, Garfield. I met him once. How was he? Um, He was a very nice, decent man. That's very nice. nice man. Rest like, in peace. I, I yeah. won an award, and then he said... When was that movie out? When did that movie? He didn't even see the Hangover. <laughs> I didn't even know it was out. Either. When was that movie out? That's so funny. That's classic actor. Just so deep in your art. Yeah, that was just um. Listen, he left us all too soon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They all do. They all do. You know, we don't get to say goodbye or something. You always feel bad. You know. Yeah. 
But back to Mike. No, I've been a fan since day one. The first time I saw you throw up. In fact, I got to talk to you about something. You owe me $250 from July (laughs) of 87 because I bought an eight ball and I was working this chick. You were fighting Spinks in Atlantic City. And I was working, and I had 15 rounds to work it, but you knocked the motherfucker out in 58 seconds. He had to <laughs> go, little, man. And her little girlfriends took her back, and there I am with this eight ball and a hard dick. Oh, you know no. what I'm saying? How do you get a hard dick with eight ball? Oh, right? oh yeah. Yeah. You're 28, you can get yeah. it hard still. God damn. Do it right now and try to get oh, it hard. It's not going to work. You need a motherfucking snake charm. It's not going to work, man. God, I always wanted to know that secret, man. How do you get it hard when you get high? How do you get your dick hard on yeah. coke? In the 80s, you could get your yeah. dick hard on coke. Then uh, then they started putting hairspray in it. I always, had, Vi- I always had Viagra and all that stuff. Um, to counteract? Yeah, to counteract. Oh, my God. I never did Viagra. I'm scared. Fuck. Yeah, fuck. But hey, I knocked my wife up at 50. Yeah, you did. So I'm good, yeah. Fuck. She was 42. Yeah, 50. That's amazing. Smoking dope like a motherfucker. No other drugs. I knocked her up. Amazing. Can you believe that? God works in mysterious ways. I knocked my wife up at 32. Yeah, man. Did you? She was 32, yeah. Wow. First child, 32. My aunt had had my cousin at 45. So it can happen. Really? Yeah. Yeah, man. Theo Vaughn's father was 72. Wow. 72. Who's father? Dio Vaughn. You got to yeah. get that motherfucker in here. Oh, he yeah. He got stories, too. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. But Dio had him when he was 70. His father had him when he was 72. God, man, a newborn. A uh, Spanish dude. That Spanish they blood. Keep fucking that Spanish they. sperm. You get, they'll knock <laughs> they you up in the fucking fucking. casket. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You get a Puerto Rican with good genes. You jerk them off in the casket. Boom. You got twins. They don't fuck around. <laughs> Tell them, Mike. Tell them, Mike. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. <laughs> That's little crazy. Bit. Dude, I couldn't imagine being 72 and having a newborn. Oh, I was twenty. Man. I was 24 when we had our daughter, man, and I was fuck. What a fucking trip to that be an was... old man and knock my When my wife came in, I was with her for 13 years, and she came in and she goes, you knocked me up, and I was like, fuck, close the door. <laughs> I had to think about it for a little while and shit. Now I'm very happy. You know, my wife's happy. So God works in mysterious ways, man. No doubt, man. You know, it's funny as with all the things we did, we're talking about juvie. Like, I mean, you were a badass motherfucking juvie. Yeah, I was. I was doing shit, but I was keeping it on the down low, and I knew too many people to get arrested. I I became a felon after 17, and then I got busted at the age of 25. And I did two years, and I came out, and I did a halfway house, and I was still doing my shit. And some dude in the in the prison, he was in there for murdering his wife and the mailman. This motherfucker caught a federal rap because he was a mailman, but he was the prison librarian. And he used to listen to me talk on, on, on one of the nights of the week. They did movie night in prison, and the projector would always break. And I worked in the kitchen, so I had... I knew everybody. I worked in the kitchen. I was the stock clerk, so I had connections in there. I was giving the bodybuilders extra meat. I knew where the extra cheese was, you know. And they would say, on, when the projector would break, they would go, Cuba, go up there and say some shit. The brothers would go, Cuba, get the fuck up there and say some shit. <laughs> and I would go up there and goof on the brother. You know what I'm saying? Like I would, because, You'd do a stand-up. Because I would sit behind the, the prison line when they were feeding prisoners. 
and check out everything, and they'd be feeding them the food. And whenever they gave you like shit on shingles, what's that shit? Shit beef on right? Yes. Yeah. That shit is net. Whenever they gave all that type of shit. Oh, that's some disgusting watery gravy. I would stand in the back, and as the brothers walked in first, I would go, don't do it. And they knew not to eat the shit. So then we had little prison dudes. It was an Italian dude that would make nachos with a fucking iron. Uh, cook a uh, uh, iron. He took the fucking guts out, and he would stick it in the bucket and put a piece of cheese in there at eight in the morning. And by six o'clock, the cheese would melt. And he would cut jalapenos up. And there was a Mexican dude who made tacos. So I would tell him not to eat, and I thought it. They thought it was kind of funny the way I said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they would throw me up on this table, and I would just crack jokes on the prisoners. It was like ninety-two prisoners. It was a prison camp. And I didn't know I was doing stand-up, Mike. I had no fucking That's idea. That's so awesome. And one day the, the prison uh, librarian was a nerdy dude. And we I wasn't smoking dope in there because they were piss testing you. But him and I would do acid from time to time. And we would stay up all night and the guards would go, what the fuck is wrong with you two? We'd be talking outside and shit. So tell me, tell me this. Do you ever think about like where you're at now and what do you spend through your experience? You think about your friends that died, you've never seen you succeeded? Oh, my God, you just gave me fucking goosebumps. I know we, we lost a lot of people yes. before we got here. When I started, they never saw us through this. They think we were dying <coughs> with them in the streets. But we, something happened. Now we're here. When I started comedy in 91, I did good for the first two years, and I went back to New York City in 93. And a kid who took me and would drive me to the gigs was a dude that reminds me of you. His name was Darren Rago. This motherfucker was shooting steroids when we were 16. Fuck. He would go into clubs. I would tell him, take your shirt off and do push-ups. <laughs> and he would just start doing push-ups at a disco without his shirt on in 82, 83. He was just crazy. And I left for a while. When I came back 10 years later, he was crazy. I'm like, you know how we get. This dude was working at the airports. One night I bumped into him two weeks before he died, and he told me, he goes, I go, what are you doing now? He goes, I'm a bodyguard for a Chinese dude. He goes, all I got to do is get him high. He goes, we do ketamine, we do this, we do that, we do this, but we ketamine. never drink. He goes, but at the end, he goes, we never drink because that will fuck up your liver. Uh. you know. But he used to pick me up. This guy was a gangster. Yeah. He would pick me up and drive, drive me to comedy shows and watch me and encourage me. Like, you can't even fathom this. So This is a, Darren. This is Darren Rago. There's a picture of him on my wall. I have a picture of him on my ancestor shrine. I have an ancestor shrine. All the motherfuckers I lost along the way, from Anthony Balzano to Dominic Special to all the kids that I grew up with, my mother, my father, my uh, one of my teachers, the dude who took me out of New York, who took me to Boulder, Colorado, and showed me to get me out of New York when I owed 50000 that he died. I got all their pictures, and I put, I put glasses of water. That's what you do when you're Cuban. And every Monday, you light a candle, you fill the glasses, and you thank them for guiding you through this fucking life. You know, I always say, do you ever say to yourself, Why, why me? Why not the other guy that was smarter than me, had more money than me, were cooler than me? And everybody thought they were the guys and they wanted to die and they're getting locked up for life. He said, How come me? I wasn't the really the guy out of the group that really was supposed to make it. You I ask myself story? that every fucking day. When I'm sitting there <laughs> at six o'clock at night and I'm eating dinner with my wife and my little girl saying prayers, I sit there and I go, if these two knew the things I did you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I question what the... For a long time, for about two years, 
until I shot the Netflix Degenerates. I went through a hard period in my life a couple of years ago because I couldn't accept what was going on. People coming up to me saying I changed their life. Bitch, I robbed a can of coins one time out of a Carvel. You know those fucking cans that say donate to blind kids? Yeah. Handicapped. Donate to blind kids. One time I went to dying. Yeah, one definitely. time I went to Carvel and I took whatever was in there. It was $7, Mike. And here I am now at the comedy store every fucking night doing comedy with Joe Rogan and Whitney Cummings and, and, and Dalia and fucking Jeff Ross. And, and I look at myself and I go, what the fuck? Listen, you know, um, coming from a place that where we came from, what we did. We only um, internalize who we are, and we think that we're nothing because we don't think these guys did what we did. And it's in our mind. Like say, say we know somebody that killed somebody. We seen somebody got been killed or something, or we're the cause of it. You know, what I mean, somebody may have been picked on us or tried to abuse us, and we went to tell a friend, and our friend came back and killed them. You know, um, that's just how it is in New York. And so we say to ourselves, we're not worthy of this because we're scumbags. Every day of my life, I, I, I you know? question how the fuck I got here. You know, you I got left back in the stuff. seventh grade. I got a GED. I'm a felon. Yeah, and no, I'm listen, a, I'm and saying I'm a, I didn't even get my and GED. I'm a, oh, and I'm a wow. Cuban that can't play baseball. I got nothing going for me. I got my GED only because I was going to go to prison, and if you get your high school diploma, they knock two points off. So you end up going to a lower See, that's why I was in prison. I said, if you get your GED, they get you to I failed the damn GED. So I said, let's try this kid. Let's go to the drug counselor and take these drug tests into this program. It's you know? funny because I fucked my drug counselor. <laughs> when I was more in the halfway house, there was this badass counselor. When I got out, she used to piss test me. And I was putting, I was pulling my, I'm uncircumcised. So I would pull, pull the skin back on my dick. I was snorting coke like a motherfucker. And I said, what cleans up your piss, Mike? What cleans up your piss? Pool cleaner. So I would take pool cleaner and grind it down uh, on a cheese oh, grinder. Pool cleaner? Pool cleaner. What's those, that? those pills that you put in the fucking what disc the and they fuck? float around the water. I would shave that down. I would pull the skin of my dick back. <laughs> I would sprinkle pool cleaner on my dick and pull the skin over and put like a little bread tie at the end. Oh, and man. I would go take a piss. <laughs> And I would pull the skin back, and the pool cleaner would go into the piss, and I would fuck up the piss test. Uh, man, you don't turn, understand, my team. Huh? It would just go. And one time I put Drano in that motherfucker, and the thing started foaming. But the, the dude couldn't catch what I was doing. They knew I was fucking up the machine, Mike, but they couldn't catch it. So they sent a white chicken one day, and I'm and I would jerk off outside a little yeah. bit to get my dick hard, and I would go in there with this Cuban egg roll, and I fucking pee and show her the hammer so I get out of the halfway house I move on with my life I get into comedy and I'm slinging oh, I'm, in, I'm delivering Chinese food but slinging coke and doing comedy at the same time so if Mike wanted coke I would go Mike don't call the Chinese restaurant order an egg roll and I'll deliver it and at least I can blame it on the Chinese people because it was in the bag like a fortune cookie so one day I knocked on the door and who answers the door the drug counselor but to boot she had she was she was cute she had a nice breast she had a nice body but the only problem with it was she had a leg like with a limp and it was like a mystery so nobody talked to the bitch Why we met eyes we started swapping Joey. spit i started fingering her i laid her down and what i did was i pulled the one leg off the one leg but i didn't even pull the one the gene off the other leg i just left it a mystery i ate her monkey i put my hammer in her mouth 
and it was one of those long comes when it's like 20 oh, minutes man. when they're just looking at you because yeah. I wasn't trying to jerk off then I was trying to get muscles I was 33 trying to get into lifting and shit oh my god I never oh, saw her yeah. again she gave me like an $8 tip and that was it I never saw her again yeah. I forget what her name was but who gives a fuck god bless oh, her man. when you fuck your drug counselor you got problems dog. <laughs> no we had problems oh, I used to snort coke here. in the halfway house I was slinging in the halfway house, and Mike, I was loan sharking because the rent was $75, and you had to pay it on Thursday, or you couldn't get out. See, I so couldn't I, get high in prison because my head be all fucked up. Oh, fuck no, I didn't enough. get high in prison. I, I just did acid in prison. Five, but when man. I got to the halfway house, that's when I went fucking nuts. I had the coke hidden in the fucking thing, and I would sell it in the halfway house. You can't believe like that I'm the same person today. That's why now when they get mad at a governor or even at that judge for something they did 30 years ago, you really can't get mad at that because I was a completely different person. I was a com- You change. As a human being, we adapt every couple of years that we say to ourselves, we can't act that way anymore. So I can't believe when Mike's original question was, how do you feel? How the fuck do you think I feel? I fucked my drug counselor. You know, I had no respect for nothing. And it wasn't my fault or it wasn't that I didn't respect people. It was the 70s in New York that gave us this feeling of invincibility. And I, I'm not a big New Yorker. I, I'm not the type of dude that says New York pizza, New York bagels. I don't talk about that shit. But the heart that New York had in the 70s set me out. And then going to North Bergen and hooking up with people from Hoboken, that Italian heart from Hoboken gave me this you-can't-kill-me feeling. Like, I got the Hollywood. Hoboken's I had still a nice neighborhood. Oh, now it's a now. real nice fucking it's neighborhood. It's really fucking nice. But yeah. the 50s and 40s, it was kind of weird towards the Italians. So the Italians that came out of Hoboken had a fight. So when I moved to North Bergen, I was surrounded with these guys that had moved on Man. up from Hoboken. So I got that heart from them, plus my Cuban heart, Plus that thing that New York had in the 70s, that going to 42nd Street when you're 13 and avoiding drugs and buying drugs for the first time. And there were fake drugs. And you had to watch that you don't get caught by the police. And you had to watch that you don't get caught by the the cops. How many times did you walk in one of those X-rated shows and sit on a hooker's lap when you were 14? Yes. No, listen. This is the thing, right? You were in one of these. um, We're going to one of these porn places, right? Because um, we're there, we're robbing all day, and we can't go home because we, so we're going to sleep in the movie theaters, right? But we got money, and you're sleeping, and next thing you know, you see some guy comes in, and he sits in the front, you think he's watching a movie, you fall in love, you wake up, then he's in the seat closer, and then you fall asleep again, you wake up, he's right next to you, right? Oh, fuck. Yeah, some fucking freaky guy trying to oh, rub your legs and your balls, and he's like, holy fuck, shit. Fuck, bro. When I went and to we're a little kids, and we don't know these fucking freaks, dog. Fuck, bro. There was freaks. a porno theater I would go to in, like, East Orange, New Jersey on Sunday nights. My buddy got on a kick to go out there. And I'll never forget, I went out there one time on a Sunday night. And every time you go to the bathroom, a guy would just mysteriously pop up next to you in the urinal next to you <laughs> and look at your dick. You were a fucking kid. Yeah, you're a kid. And he was, like, 40. Ugh. So you get to so see that up. side. I yeah. only got. We listen, but the whole thing we used to rob and say, "Yeah, come on, come, on, I have a sister for you." Come oh on. my god! Oh, that was the whole thing to rob this fucking um, this, this fucking um, what do we call those? The tricks, rob the tricks, rob the tricks, wow, get the man. money. There was a park where I grew up, Hudson County Park, and in like the summer of eighty, we found out that if you stood out there, 
guys that would get drunk, like older guys would come over and they'd look for people to suck your dick. We were coming home from uh. a Judas Priest concert uh. and we seen these young guys out there and cars would pull up and it was like a trick, like where's the George Washington Bridge? And they would go that way and the car would turn around and the guy would get in it. Uh. So we devised a system where we'd get a guy, put like shorts on him, with a nice wife beater shirt on, with a little paddle, with a fucking, and you put him out there with a little ball, then the guy would get the guy out of the car, no, let me suck your dick under the tree. And then they would take him under the tree, we'd throw him under the tree, he would kick him in the nuts, we'd jump out of the tree, (laughs) fucking take their wallets and run, they couldn't go to the cops. My neighborhood as a whole, North Bergen got so good at it that each neighborhood had representatives that would go down there and had their piece. And there was one neighborhood, 64th Street Field. They had a kid that was so good, he'd make the motherfuckers take him to their house. And then he would call you from there. I'm over here making that because I got the guy tied up. Like, that's how good. We were fucking kids, man. We were 16, 17. It was a different fucking world. Yeah, you had no like curfew. It, it, it was like, like nobody, you know, there's a and comic. And if you got locked up, it was better than being home. You know what I mean? You had, you had snacks. You had the, um, they gave you um, snacks, snacks at night, three, um, three meals. They treat you good, gave you cookies and milks and God, stuff. That's crazy, dude. I never went. Joey, how old are you? I'm uh, 56. I just recently turned. I'm 52. Okay. 52, yeah. We walked past each other. Yeah, I'm at sure. Some point. I'm sure. And I, I, when I was a kid, I had a my mother had the bookmaking operation in the Bronx, and then we moved to 118th Street in in, in Harlem. But then they have satellites on There's Saturday. There's no action in 118th Street. Yeah, yeah but Saturday is the big day for numbers, so you have to develop satellite offices, and they would have an office in Bed Stuy. That would have like a, a little bodega that would call the numbers into them. And we were paid to walk around the neighborhood and look for different type of cars. Like that said, they would give us like 40 bucks on a Saturday. But you have to understand, they don't understand, it's jam-packed. Jam-packed. So if you saw two guys in a car, you had to run back and tell them there's two guys in the car. And all you did was walk around the neighborhood all What day. did that mean? It's like a lookout. You're like a lookout. And then there would say these guys are in the neighborhood. Yeah, like there's cops in the neighborhood or there's a car down the block with weird plates and a guy sitting in there by himself. Right. They would give you like 40 bucks to just walk around the neighborhood, run their errands, go get them ham and cheese sandwiches. And then at 4 o'clock when the number comes out, the Brooklyn number, because there's three numbers. There's the Brooklyn number, the New York number. I didn't know that. Which comes out in number. Yeah, when you look at the total mutual of the track of the daily news, when you open up the the daily news, you look at the, there's always the track. They always give you, only in New York mm. do they give you the fucking track results and what the track made. So the track handle is what the, the last three numbers is the number of the day. So you could bet that number, you could bet it by the number. And, you know, neighborhoods where Mike, Mike came from, where my mom had these places set up, people have a dream. They have a job, but they have a dream. Did anyone ever try to tell your family? No, that wasn't the number. Three came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that oh, no. bullshit. But no, yeah. but when you take the number, there's a receipt. If you take a number face-to-face, I have a receipt that goes three ways. It's a white copy, a pink copy, and a blue copy, and you got to initial it before you give yeah, me the $3. Yeah, but I'm booking with some slick shit. Somebody trying to do some People would try, shit. and even on the phone, people would call and go, no, you gave me a 10-timer. Yeah. Let's go to the tape recorder. There's not a bookie that doesn't tape his phone calls. Mm. They all type their phone calls. So if you come back at them and go, 
you called in a 250 timer or 300 dollars. Yeah, there's always uh, some slick shit. Always some slick shit. It's insane. I was born in New York in '87, St. Vincent's. Yeah. Lived in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Park Vincent, Slope. Brooklyn, where Atlantic Slope. Avenue. Uh, we were on 14th or 12th Street <coughs> between yeah. 8th Avenue and Prospect Park. I know that place. I Man. was already gone. I was doing time wow. in 87. Wow. No, 87 was when I got in trouble. Everybody was doing 88. time in 87, 80. In the 80s, everybody was locked up. <laughs> hey, man, you wow. know, you make mistakes. And, everybody was and, locked up. And the funny 80s. thing is Monday I posted the picture of the guy I kidnapped in 1987. He came to my show this past weekend in Tucson. Wow. I've been in touch with him for about five years. I apologized to him like a man. It was a drug rip, Mike. It was uh, He had two kilos of coke, and I was young. I was stupid. You know, and uh, I made a mistake and with another guy, and we fucked up. And I did, you know, he didn't even testify, Mike. He didn't even testify. The other guy, my partner in it, testified against me. And then I plea bargained to zero to six. The judge gave me four with a, 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 and Cordy told me to fucking come back in 120 days. And if I behaved myself, he reduced my sentence when they cut it to community corrections. And that's the hardest thing I went through. Prison ain't hard. It's that community corrections. That's how they hang you. Because you can't do make shit. Make one mistake. You, make, you can't be in a bar. Your, your life is six to six. You know, basically, you have to live under a strict life. And even then, like I said, I was And if your friend's a felon, he better walk right by you. He better yeah, not slap you can't you talk five. to him. You can't Yeah, you uh, better not say, hey, man, I'm glad to see you. You better just walk right by you. It's a hard life at that point. But you know what, man? I did it. I paid my debt to yeah. society. You know, I got divorced. I fucking lost everything. I started again. And the only thing that I could think of was comedy. And I just wanted to be a regular comedian. I wanted to hide. And I ended up in Los Angeles. And the next thing you know, I was like Richard Gere, an officer and a gentleman. I had nowhere else to go. Yeah. Mitzi Shaw, God rest his soul, gave me spots, spots, spots. Then a dude, Joe Rogan, I put, he came into my life, and he taught me how to be a professional, you know? And uh, here we are, 27 motherfucking years later. Comedy saved my life. You Amazing. Ever th- you ever think about doing residencies in, like, Vegas or anything? I just did Treasure Island Friday, yeah, awesome. and it was tremendous. I really liked them. I did the South Point before. They were very nice also. But it's time to, you know, move on up a little bit. I'm 56. I got one foot in the grave, one a banana peel. I got a lot of life left in me, dog. I got a lot of life left in me. So I still do my little every two weeks on the road. I got the podcast. I I, I got the kid. It's, I got to talk to you about something real quick. I tape my kid. You know, I'm Cuban, and Cubans are very proud of their boxes. So uh, I tape my kid hitting the mitts, and I sent it to my uncle. He's 80. And my uncle came back. He goes, you tell that fucking teacher of hers that we're distant cousins of Kid Chocolate, yeah. right? So I know that part of your fucking uh, genius is that you watched a lot of tape. There ain't nobody that can tell you a story about a fight. His name is Eligio Sardinas. Sardinia, Sardinia, yeah. compadre. Sardinia, you know what Sardinia means in no, Spanish? No, a Spanish uh, name, but that's from Spain, Yeah, right? that's yeah. Just, no, Sardinia means, uh, uh, what are those things that you eat in prison? Sardines. 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 Yeah. yeah. So Sardinia, yeah. Kid Chocolate, Sardinia. When you're in New York, and I was, and I lived in, a, in Union City, is the second biggest 
Cuban population in the country. A big shout out to Lucio Fernandez. And uh, when before you got into a fight when you were Cuban, the first thing you told the motherfuckers, listen, before we box, I just want you to know. My cousin's kid, chocolate. Really? <laughs> no, no. But it's a fucking island. We're all yeah. cousins. I did the twenty-three nah, and me. I'm forty percent African. What the but, fuck? But I'm just saying that the fact that he was that popular, he kid, was, chocolate. Really? He was that, that popular. Yeah, I remember. I watched a lot of films about him. That's why I knew his How name. How good was, was he? He was magnificent. Did he really fight twenty-five times in one year? I, listen, I wouldn't doubt it. Listen, he had a hundred amateur fights in Cuba, and he was undefeated with like eighty-five knockouts. Is that true? They said they redid it. The historian went in. And nah, he, um, he only had 50 Dick, knockouts. Let me tell you something about Kid it, Chocolate. Drop it on me. I'm let fucking excited. Let me tell you something about Kid Chocolate. It's not, some things are not something. Kid Chocolate was very promiscuous. You know, in the, um, he fought like he had a lot of disease, like venereal diseases and stuff. I believe that's how he, that probably he got sick and stuff. He got sick from venereal diseases and stuff. These are the legends that I wrote, that I read and stuff. And I saw Ben. I saw pictures of him. Um, I believe it was on um, what? What year was it? It was something happened at the. You, um, I, I watched it on Um and I think after I'm gonna look on YouTube and see they showed pictures of him in Cuba, like in the '80s, like in '80, 80, '84, '88, something to that effect. And he was he was just old, broken down man, but he was a magnificent fighter. He was so inspirational for fighters like Archie Moore, Henry Armstrong, because when they saw him fight, he was um. He made more money than the heavyweights. He made like $100,000 a fight in one particular fight or something like that. And that's why he was so popular. Everybody just loved him. Everybody, he, they made songs. Um, what's going to make songs about him? Um, Count Basie did songs about um, Kid Chocolate and stuff. He was just a magnificent um, sensation when he came to America. He moved to New York. And he yeah, was he was awesome. He was from awesome. Panama, Al Brown and all those guys. He was just magnificent. It's just that he had got sick. Did you watch a lot of tape on him and study him? I watched him? everything. He got. I watched him fight Fidel Barba. I watched him fight all those guys that um, he had. He was a magnificent fighter, man. Kid, um, he fought Tony Candelari. He fought all these guys. He had, listen, he had uh, probably 150 fights, pro fights. Great fight, very sensational fight, a very popular fighter, one of the most popular fighters. And they had people name their, name themselves after him, too. Right, right. You know, such a kid chocolate, big kid chocolate, chocolate, this and that. Sardinius. Awesome fight. When he came to, um, when Castro took over, he was a very wealthy guy, Kid Chocolate, but he took everything. And he died in Cuba, correct? Yeah. Castro he, took everything? He was wealthy. Yeah, he had money, and Castro took all the property and all the cash out of the bank. You know, they turned, they were communists, so I guess... That was basically... They had to shut it down. Yeah. It's funny how many uh, venereal diseases, when Columbus went to Cuba, he brought back, like he took something, He brought then he went back, and what they brought back was sugar and syphilis. Yeah, mm. I would see the rumors were the cut. Cuba was sick. a big syphilis fucking yeah. hotbed. Interesting. You know, I tested hot for syphilis a few times, no biggie. <laughs> I moved on. Fuck it. Doing all right? No, nah, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I ain't never catch no fucking syphilis, you know. Maybe <laughs> I ain't never caught no shit like that. I caught like the that. crabs one time yeah, in 85. But that was yeah. it. Holy Fuck. shit, man. Well, the time you guys came up, I'm just glad you didn't get the, the HIV. Oh, man. Thank God. No, you know what? I, I can't see needles. <laughs> God, God threw me a big blessing. I can't see needles. So... Mm. I never, I think I snorted heroin maybe two times, two times, and I liked it. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie to you, but I knew that 
it would be a problem. I had enough problems on my hands with the addictions I already had. So I left it alone, and I don't, till this day, I've been clean 11 years from that white fucking devil. Amazing. And I don't know how I did it. I woke up one day, and uh, that was it. There was no rehab. There was no hugs. I looked at my, my girlfriend at the time, and I knew I didn't want her to find me on the floor. There's some people, like you and me, we're born to find motherfuckers on oh, the no, floor. Oh, no, um, last week my friend on the floor. So OD. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, so, in Brooklyn, OD. Sorry, on the Mike. Floor, on the floor. There's some people who aren't cut out for that. It'll change their whole life. My wife is from Tennessee, good family. I didn't want her to find me on the floor. And one day I just stopped. And I keep the reefer because it keeps my mind back on the street and who the fuck I was. That's the last thing I do because it it's my teddy bear, Mike. I started smoking chocolate tie in, in 1980 and, you know, gold. That was a good year. Oh, my God. Bed-Stuy, chocolate tie up there. Sure, that's jeans, That shit baby. would fucking kill you. And, <laughs> sure, that's jeans. So I always kept marijuana. I don't like the word sober. It makes people edgy. People that live sober, they have to hide or something. I don't like the word sober. Well, I got to tell you something Go ahead. that I just read Go in ahead. this uh, book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. It's all about psychedelics and LSD and psilocybin. And he talks about in there how one of the, the main AA founder, Bill Wilson, mm-hmm. he had his – they talk about in the 12 steps, they talk about having a spiritual awakening. Bill had his spiritual awakening in a guided uh, trip on this stuff called Belladonna, which is like a hallucinogenic compound. And he was a huge believer in the idea that LSD could cure alcoholism. He was a big believer in psychedelics. It kind of blew blew my mind. I knew that too. You know, because what it does, these things are different. You know, they they crush our ego. They show us all our trauma and, and our pain and they help us forgive ourselves, you know. Joey, do you still do any uh, – I know you've posted like jars of fucking mushrooms on on your Instagram, you but MDT? do you still – It's funny. It's funny when I – we were talking about mescaline. We used to get mescaline Remember hits. Back in the day? Back in the day and four-way and acid and, and stuff. stuff. My mom died. I started doing acid maybe a year before my mom passed. But when my mom passed, this, the reason why – one of the reasons I'm still here is because I went on an acid fucking tear for like a year. Mm. You know, I'm scared now that I might have something because for a year I did acid. I would go home at night, put do a hit of acid, and listen to Black Sabbath. I would force myself. And then my mother died in 79. And in 80, the war came out. They do a song called Mother. Oh, yeah. And Ozzy Osbourne has a song on his, Our Mother, Please Forgive Us. Mm. And I would force those on myself and face my reality. My mother was gone. I mean, it took me wow, five man. years. Grief is a yeah. fucking motherfucker. Yeah. It took me basically from 79 to 84 to basically realize when she was gone. Even though they put her in a hole, I was there. There were nights I would still drive by my old house just to see if they made a mistake. And she got caught at Yonkers Raceway in traffic and just, you know. So uh, the acid helped me deal with it. I hated, I hate myself for doing it, what I did, but... One of the reasons why I'm still here is because I faced my fucking uh, well. I think pain, it's yeah, know? yeah, man. I think it's very therapeutic. 
You know, they're, they're coming out with more and more studies about how these things are helping people deal with depression, dying, you know, the most intense things that happen in life, you know, and that's what kind of blew my mind is that the 12 steps that he put together are really the steps of a psychedelic trip. You know, you surrender to something, you realize that you are in the hands of God and you make an encounter with God and oneness and we are all connected. And then you experience some sort of inventory of seeing all the things that you did wrong, you know, all of the trauma that you caused in your life. And then it moves to making an amends for all of that, you know, and apologizing to those you need to and to yourself and finding forgiveness for yourself. You know, my biggest therapeutic thing is I love smoking marijuana in the morning, getting stoned and just letting my hand do the walking on a piece of paper. Mm. And I'll write out two or three pages. And then later on that night, I'll look at it and then write what I'm thinking at that point. You know, I think for me, the the, the writing yeah. has always helped me with the marijuana, especially like from, like last night I got home from the comedy store, 1130. You're wired up. You just did two motherfucking shows. You're yeah. yelling and screaming. You're jacked. Talking about Jesse Smollett and shit. <laughs> fucking it up. Yeah, motherfuckers. Up. Holy fuck. Let's talk about fucking it. Fucking it up. Oh, but man. you know what, man? Listen, I had a Santa Rita godmother, and I went to see her in 1995 before I left New York. And she read my cards, and on the way out, she goes, do me a favor. Don't ever do business with three people. In 1985, the last thing she said to me is, and it says right here, don't do business with three people. In 1987, what did I do? I set up a kidnapping with another guy and that. I remember when I turned myself in, I kept seeing images of my godmother saying, don't do business with three people. That's what Jesse smoked. That's all she said? He did business with three people. That's it. And two could always turn on you. And that's exactly what happened. And only one can keep a secret is two of them are dead. That's it. Only dead men tell you know? tales. So it's uh, it's really weird that you saw what went down. You can't believe it. But I don't blame it on Jesse Smollett. I blame it on the pressure that Hollywood puts on these kids, whether it's Hollywood makes us do some fucking dumb shit. If you fall you into think, that motherfucking hole. Okay. You think just for, like, attention? I don't know. Just it's just to, crazy. You know what? The thing is, um, we want these people to love us. We want these people to give us jobs and we want to live our life happily ever after and be the head, sometimes be the head nigga on the team. I'm going to be the baddest nigga on the team. I'm the richest, the baddest, whatever it may be. You know what I mean? And then we forget um, we forget who we really are. You know, we get lost in this fucking cloud of success of what we believe is success, being different from what we were. You know, I've been to that stuff. Just hating who I were. I don't want to be that person no more. That person, that that person, um, helped me become who I'm, who I want to be. Mm. Why don't I want to be involved with that person no more in my life? I used to always be that way. I used to always want to close the door of my path, forget I was a thief. You know, my, my parents and those street workers and all that stuff. So, all that stuff would make people, you know, want to throw their old life away. But you know, you always have to um, believe who you are and have to accept who you are. You know what I mean? And be conscious. And I always say, people tell people my conscience supersedes my color. You know, because I know what time it is out here. You know, I, mean, I know people from my experience in life and meeting Cuss. You know? I wish I would have met Cuss because when I did The Longest Yard, that was the 
as I was shooting it, I got smoke blown up my ass. And when the movie came out, nothing happened. And that was one of the darkest times of my life. And about a year and a half later is when I quit smoking uh, Snort and Blow. That was the darkest pain I had because, and after that, I never bought into it. Once betrayal, I stopped, betrayal's the trip. Betrayal of cause people to commit suicide. You know, you think you know if you do well here, this is going to happen, and no one ever calls you. You know, what I mean, they tell you all these stories. They, you do this, you sign this, this is going to happen, this kind, but it never really happens to the degree which they they tell you it's going to happen. You know, or your mind plays tricks on you. You know, I never. One thing I never did was sell my soul. I knew who I was. I knew where I came from, and I kept it in the back of my mind. And uh, that helped me. After the longest yard, I had my little bout with my shit. And like I said, November 2007, I just stopped. I had to get a movie, and the producer said to me that my reputation preceded me, that before I accepted this movie, that I knew I had to be on the set every day, and they knew I had some type of drug problem, so it embarrassed me so much. I said, I got to give this up if I want to move on, you know. And uh, But I could look Mike in the eye. I could look myself in the eye every fucking day and know that I did this comedy game. I didn't have to sell my soul. You know, that was, I'm a bad motherfucker from the comedy store. Being from the comedy store so is like being So easy to sell like, your soul, you know. It's just, no, no, it's very easy. Doesn't even seem hard. Doesn't even seem it's hard. It's very easy. But, no, you, uh, we get confused at times. I know when you were a young man, they threw a lot at you at one time. Oh, man. When you came it. from fucking nothing, they you threw everything it. at you. And I can't tell you what, you know, when you think about it now, what you survived. No, I, I don't mean, even want to bring very, it up. I'm mean, very know. grateful. But yet, the, you know, sometimes when I see people who are blind, like people like Stevie Wonder, even though he may have been through hard times in life or been through divorce or something, but imagine being able to see the person that you love hurt you, right? standing at fucking, um, what is that, a stand in court. You know, imagine if a blind person could see that. Somebody that you love said, fuck you, he did this to me. In front of everybody, it's all your, it's over. Yeah, I got a divorce soon. Imagine somebody telling you, imagine me, you know, see this wife, I spent my life with this person. I love this person with every grain of love I had in my body and my mind, everything. And this is what this comes to. It's two niggas. Tearing at each other like animals. I love you, Mike. Oh, I love you You've too, brother. You've been a big influence in my life, man. You were, uh, you know, people have to know that when I started the podcast, I didn't do the podcast to be up here. I wanted to let people know that no matter what happens to you, you could get to your goal. I let people I'm know. I'm a strong believer in that. I don't give a Frenchman's fuck. Listen, if this is what you want to yeah. do. You could do it, and I think that you're helping a lot of people. I learned that from Cuss. Never give podcast. up. Don't nah, give up. who gives a fuck? Don't care if you lost your eye, you broke, you lost your legs, your arm. Never give up. Let's never give up. You know the prison system is meant to break you mentally and physically. They tell you when you get out of prison that you could do paperwork and go on disability the rest of your life because you're a felon. I ripped that shit up for you know, two sometimes years. Sometimes prison strengthen people. It, that's what it did to it me. Strengthen people for two years after my felon. After I got out of prison, I had to do, you know, background checks. And people come back to me a week later and say, "You got a felony." And I go, "No, I don't. You got the wrong Jose Diaz. You know how many motherfucking Jose Diazes there is? Tons. That's like John Smith in Miami. Get the fuck out of my face." And I would. I never addressed myself like a felon. I said I paid my dues to society. I didn't rat. I fucking did it. 
I'm going to start anew. It took me, because I'm a pussy, it took me two years to get on stage after I got out of fucking prison because I'm a pussy. But once I did it, I had my purpose. And I figured I'd go underground. Then my, I came home one day, and my wife said, I don't want to be married to you no more. And uh, we, oh, had I know a, that feeling. we had God, a child. That hurts. And, <laughs> and I knew You're as talking about an ego crusher. Yeah, I knew as I was. <laughs> I, you know I knew as I was getting out of that that uh, she wasn't gonna let me be the father to this child. I'm gonna fuck so my other boyfriend. I had two I like other. Him more. Yeah, she left me for an older guy. I like him more. And I couldn't he blame has more her. money or something. Mike Tyson. <laughs> Mike Tyson. Thinking back today, I don't blame her. I don't fucking blame her. How can I be angry at her? She was thinking about that child. You know, I think about would I leave a child with me when I was 32 years old for five hours? Not really. Not really. So she had every right to do what she did. I'm like, I'm like fucking uh, Denzel and Man on Fire. I had to give up a life to get a motherfucking life. So tell me, brother, this, how do brother like you when you get conscious, right, of what you've done? Like you're telling you, um, you you weren't living your life right to have the child or live with the child. How do how do you uh, how do you learn to make up to yourself? I write. I keep in touch with everybody who helped me out as I was growing up. I keep in touch with all my friends. Anybody who helped me along the way, I keep in touch. I try to do something nice for somebody every day when I wake up. Make somebody's day is what I call it. There's nothing like making somebody's day. You ever got a call from a motherfucker that don't want nothing from you? He just call up to check up on your ass? Very rare. Very rare. Very rare. That's, Very rare. I make it a habit once or twice Very a week rare. to call a motherfucker and go, what's going on? <laughs> don't text me either. Take that text and shove it up your mother's ass. <laughs> call me. I want to hear your voice, Mike. You know that's 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 another problem we're dealing with. Um, with our with our children today, uh, they won't they won't call you. You have you. to have you have to tell them. In my motherfucking it, it world, dehumanize you. It's they nice. It, you. Yeah. you have to still talk to people. I'm a firm believer in calling people. What's up, dog? I don't want nothing from because you live in a place where somebody's always looking for something. So when you get a call from somebody, just checking in with you, just to say so. In all, I think about my mom. And I think about my stepdad. I saw my stepdad shoot a dude on, on 148th and Broadway at a Santeria party one time. He was Abaquah. He was Abaquah Cuban. No, no, no. He grabbed me by the hand. We got in the car. Yeah. We went down to Riverside Drive. He threw the gun into the Hudson. We drove home. And you know what, Mike? We never talked about it. He, we even left my mother at the Santeria party. We never talked about it. In 2006... I started reconnecting with him like in 95, and I checked in with him, and then I realized that he was my stepfather, and a lot who I am today is because of him. And one day we were eating lunch in 2006, and I look him in the eye, and I go, remember the night you shot Nico no. Picadillo in no. the leg? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Anybody and say no. He I goes, I don't remember that. And he kept <laughs> fucking eating. I never said the same thing. No me recuerdas eso. I said it. It was fucking hilarious. <laughs> the guy's name was Nico. He owned the bar on 143rd and Broadway. But he liked a certain Cuban dish called Picadillo. So they called him Nico Picadillo. And, and and my stepfather didn't drink nor do drugs. He just liked to shoot people. It was a religion in Cuba called Abaqua. There's Santeria, and then there's Abaqua. Abaqua, those motherfuckers that they walk around with a straight razor. 
and they dedicate their life to Saint Lazaro, the the saint with the dogs. Are they cutting themselves? They no, cutting no, 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 no. They'll fucking cut you. Oh, but God. the reason they cut you is to demoralize you, so they'll slice an ass cheek. You know, it was fucking crazy. They don't eat pussy. <laughs> Oh, man. They don't eat pussy. They're interesting guys. They're interesting fucking dudes. Like, you know. So. <laughs> you got to eat. Listen, if you're not eating pussy now, you're not getting no pussy. Yeah, dude. Nowadays, absolutely. You, know, even fucking you got to. Listen, you gotta little kids, high school kids are doing this shit, man. You got to eat pussy. Yeah, you you got to eat that. Stuff, that trouble, shit keeps nigga. your immune system oh, ticking. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. You eat somebody's asshole yeah. at a party, man. It's Tell all me more about it. Oh, no shit. Well, Joey, I mean, what do you think about... So what um, do you do, Joey? Do you, when you're eating ass, do you put your finger up the ass while you're eating the <laughs> That's a better question. <laughs> you know? I'll tell you what, man. I've been married. I've been with the same woman for 18 years. If I try to stick a finger up her ass, she'll fucking cut that motherfucking hand <laughs> off. <laughs> Them days are over with. Them coke freak days are over with, you know. That was a long time ago, Mike. It's crazy how... You think back at the shit that you got into when you were doing cocaine, and I'm embarrassed. To, I, yeah. When I was doing coke, you know, I wouldn't look in the mirror when I was coked up. Oh, uh, no. I had to do that. I was like, fuck, who am I? <laughs> I, I would, who the fuck am I? I wouldn't look in the fucking mirror when I was doing fuck. coke because I didn't want to see in my face. If you look at my face, I have scars. I would pick ingrown hairs. Just to like, in, in other words, it was like cutting because I didn't like who the fuck I was, you know. But man, I'm happy that's over. I was always dehydrated and I never drink. Mm. After the, um, us was licking, I would even become more dehydrated. I used to be hydrated, my lips be all chapped and blistered. It looked like I got AIDS. I was just looking like a mess. I would drink water with the coke. I never drank water. I, I never did that. I, I said, oh, if I, I drink water, at least I'm being half healthy. Then the next day I would wake up and eat sushi. I would go, let me go eat sushi. And if I eat the sushi, the sushi will eliminate the cocaine from my bloodstream and I could snort coke in two days again. I'm ready to rock. That's how crazy the addiction gets your fucking mind. If I'm high, listen, if I'm I'm doing cocaine, I won't stop unless I get arrested or get into an accident, a car accident. I just won't stop. Somebody had to stop me. I couldn't stop on my own. Not at all. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop either, Mike, for years. Like I said, I was doing coke when I was under, like, a probation program. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. I resorted to fucking putting, who puts chlorine on their dick? And no, I don't, that's a big way. I never saw no idea. Did that burn? Know. It burned. It. I still have little fucking scars on there from the uh. fucking, and then I put uh, the other shit, the, the Drano. To really fuck up the machine. Oh, I, I was fucking them up in every single way. They could, every time How's I was. How's your dick now? Your dick all right now? Like, it works, fuck, yeah. Fuck, I knocked somebody man. out. It's got a couple scars. It looks like Frankenstein's fucking forehead. Fuck, man. But, you know, I make it work. It ain't fucking. It <laughs> Frankenstein's got, forehead. Yeah, it's got a scar or two. Hey, man, as long as it works, bro. As long as you're not John Babbitt. No, that How about that? How about that? I Have you met guys him seen before. That? I met him before. Well, I didn't, you know, I met him somebody brought him out. Yeah, yeah. Hi, John. Hey, John. Yeah. Fuck, man. Your lady Mike, cuts was there anybody you didn't off. fucking meet in your yeah, day? I met, yeah, I met a lot of people. You met a stuff. lot of yeah. people, man. Yeah. And they all love you, and they still love you, Mike. I'm very grateful, you know. They're good people. I met good people. A lot of good people. I saw you at a couple of UFC fights, and I'd see how people reacted to you. I tried to give a lot of love, you know what I mean? No, I could see how no matter what happened, 
you know, in your life, you get a lot of love, Mike Tyson. Despite the color, where you're from, what happened, people love you, man. I just walked, I just went uh, to the store the other night, and one of B Reels boys was there. Yeah, we had a good it time. Was, he's like, dog, it was the best day of my life. We had a good Mike time. Mike Tyson was so fucking cool. I mean, you know, what you're doing right now, I mean, is, uh, it's fucking tremendous, man. You know, when I was young, I spent most of my youth in Los Angeles. And I met a lot of people, um, just all kinds of people, the right people, the wrong people, it's everybody. And I've, and I've had my share with all of them and stuff, and it was just wasn't healthy. Mm. I was always burning the candles on both ends. Would you ever consider moving back to New York now? My wife doesn't want to go back. She she lived in New York. They don't want to go back. She don't think she likes those colds anymore, those cold weathers. I, um, I wouldn't mind. You know, I'm very interested in trying San Francisco out. That's a lot of people up there. Yeah, I would like to try that place. I San like Francisco, that place. I wanna, in 85, I lived in San Francisco for about six months. Tell me about it. What was that like? I lived in the Tenderloin when the motherfucking oh, yeah. Tenderloin was the Tenderloin. <sighs> and I'm going to be honest with you, Mike. It's it rough, was, huh? <laughs> in 1985, I was a bartender at a club called Rockin' Robins on Hayden Ashbury, all the way at the end across from a Burger King. I think the Burger King or the McDonald's is still there. So at night, I would have to take the bus back to whatever the fuck, Market Street, Mission, whatever the fuck it was. I saw more violence in six months in San Francisco in 1985 than I saw growing up in New York all those years. I saw a black dude and a white dude fighting. The white dude had a stick and the brother had a sword. Holy shit. And he cut the white dude in the arm and there was blood fucking everywhere. I saw another guy stabbed open in front of Original Joe's in the Tenderloin in 85. And this is the best one where I was getting nickel bags. One day I go in there and there's a bunch of cops and the cops said, turn around and leave. They were waiting for Rick, who was this night stalker. That's where he was buying nickel. Yeah. That's where he would stay at that hotel. They took the door from that hotel. Rick Ramirez. Ramirez. Richard Ramirez. Yes. Yeah, he took, they took the door off because he wrote... ACDC. The creepy guy with the long hair. Right? Yeah, and then they beat him up when he got off the bus in East <laughs> oh, yeah, L.A. They fucked him up. The Mexicans got they him and they fucking, up. they narcoed him to death right here in East L.A. somewhere. Then the he was gave, in that neighborhood. They beat the shit out of him. They had a fucking coffee shop called Coffee Ron's. It was topless fucking coffee. You go in there and there was chicks topless all crack holed up and shit with fucking intravenous veins on their titties oh, and shit. Because I want to, um, this is what I'm interested in doing too with my um, cannabis company. You know, in San Francisco, they had um, smoke shops. There's smoke, so you could sit down and smoke your, you could sit down and smoke your weed there. Like a lounge. Lounge, yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah, very, Mike's very got one of those in the works too. Distinguished looking lounge, classic. Mike, I mean, like the same question goes to you. Can you still believe you're 53 and ticking after no. everything you went through? No, I don't. When you wake up in the morning, tell me this truth. Do you look up and say, thank you, Lord? I'm very grateful. Forgive me another fucking day. I do it every day in the shower. Can I tell you something? Um, After taking the, I thought I was tough. You know, I thought I was a tough guy. You know, I check with people for motherfuckers. You know, it's all that fucking shit. I realized I'm not tough at all. I'm happy no one kid didn't kill me. You know? I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. Every day I'm grateful. I was, uh, you know, I don't know. I was never in the territory you were in, but I'm, like I said, I'm just very grateful for being here. Like now at this part of my life, 
you know, I'm still active at the comedy store. That's like fucking. That must be awesome, right? Yeah, like to be 56 and to go to the comedy store. And all those Last guys know you, like Jeff and all those guys. Yeah, it was a, I've been there for 22 years. That was my only home. That was the only thing I had. Nobody would talk to me about, you know, I was doing the movies on my own, you know, for for. For uh, Spider-Man 2, I sent my own audition tape. I was a hustler, Mike. I used that New York mentality. Casting directors wouldn't see me. The longest yard, they didn't want to see me. So what did I do? I went to Houston. I got all coked up, and I went to play it again sports, and I bought a helmet for a fucking little guy, like a nine-year-old, and I bought a shirt. that I was 400 pounds then, wow. and I bought a shirt that was an XL, and I had my tits out, and I, was through the, and I threw the ball. And I did the lines from the movie, and I sent it to Adam Sandler, and they called me in for an audition. I got the movie. That's how I hustled. Wow. I took it back New York style. I used to get the breakdowns and send emails to the casting people. So that's how I got the hustle first. And then my stand-up was still too dirty, whatever. And then I started telling stories. I dug into telling these motherfuckers who the fuck I really was. The podcast came along, and I told a story about being with my buddies, getting eight ball of coke one night in a club in 1982, summer of 82. And we're doing a couple lines. And in those days, if you went down 11th Avenue by where the docks are, yeah. it was all hookers. And they'd be out there in the summers letting you feel the tits. Fuck it. Tell them, Mike. Stop. You wouldn't believe he, it. He tactically calls his is with the hookers. They're butt naked in the streets. In the streets. Butt naked in the streets. The hookers are naked in the streets. You, you got to see it to believe you it. You can't. It's not they wearing fancy clothes. They're butt naked, Hot man. pants, letting you finger them. You know, just. They ate that all time high, man. The, it was, it was, it was <laughs> fucking crazy. People were dropping like flies in the 80s. And I went them on to, the floor. You had to walk, step over them. In the streets, you had to step over people. I went to go to the ferry. Two months ago, three months ago, I went back to New York and I, and I go to a ferry and I remember looking at it going, what was here 20 years ago? Why is this so familiar to me? And it came back to me that had, that whole area was hookers. So I had a buddy that every time I pick him up, he'd always go, oof, oof. <laughs> Somebody's got to suck my dick tonight. He would always say this. No, you had to see this. Abby, so Abby, you had to see this situation. You had to you, see you this. You in the car. You walking on your... Back then, sometimes I did. I rode motorcycles. I'm riding my motor. I'm looking at that. You can't believe a young, beautiful girl. They're butt naked. Normally, you think you're going to see some monsters out there. You're seeing beautiful, young, yeah. attractive girls. And the pimp naked. was a black dude in a wheelchair who <laughs> oh, thought you man. thought was fucked up, but he had an Uzi under his wheelchair. I mean, it was fucking dirty down there. And my buddy would always make a stop to look at the hookers. And then he would go, all right, get out of the car. I'm going to get my dick sucked. And he would get his dick sucked, and there would always be an argument. But listen, it's, broad, it's, jet, it's in the broad open. It's right, everything's right going open. on. All the you saw was cars, cars shaking. Yeah. There was a side street where there were, uh, I'll never ah, forget, there was like a warehouse jelly. ramp. And cars would just pull over. And you just see the cars shaking. People just drive there and you get to see the hookers. You couldn't believe it. was like it. a broad fucking day, museum. I mean, at nighttime, but you know, in the broad. It was like naked. a fucking museum. In those days, the hookers would give you, I think it was 25 for a blowjob, 50 for a fucking a blowjob. And if you threw in the extra 10, it would be an around the world. They would eat asshole and shit. I swear to my mother's grave, I never touched one of those hookers. But my buddy was addicted to hookers. There was a place in New York called the 1040 Club. And this is a story for all you young guys. Don't ever get in the car with nobody. Go out by yourself. 
When people say I'm picking you up, go fuck yourself. I'm going yeah. out by myself. And I got in the car with this dude named Pedro. His family owned the candy company. And they had candy trucks. And we went over to the city for his birthday to the 1040 Club. It was $9.99 plus tax, 1040. And they'd rush you into a room. And there'd be two. You know those dudes that got cologne on and say how much pussy they get? All those dudes would be in there drinking. And then they would open up a door and push like 200 chicks, like uh, like 20 chicks out at a time. And you had to grab them and like kick them in the ankle. And then you had a ticket. And you had to give it to the guy, and he let you into a back. And it was just uh, partitions. You could hear people fucking next to you. And they'd take a bucket out from under the fucking bed, like a ping-pang-poom mattress. They'd take a sponge out. They'd wipe down your dick. And then they'd put a condom on you. And then the chick, and I'll never forget, I was, that was the first time I was a Catholic. I had, like, sucked some titties at that time and maybe fingered some people. But I was not hip to sex at all. And this chick got on top. When she took the stockings off, it was nasty. And she got on top of me, and she started going back and forth. And I could hear my dick, and, I, and it was like I was just getting sick to my stomach. And then she stopped after a minute, Mike, and she looked at me, and she goes, you know, for $10 extra, you could eat my pussy. Oh, uh, I, fucking, no. I fucking threw her off me. No. I got my, cl- my clothes on, and I fucking went, and I walked to the fucking bus, and I never went to one of those places ever fucking again. It was such a horrible experience. But if in those days, if you went down to 42nd Street and you made a right up Broadway, there was all these bars and there would be these dudes. We were 14. There'd be these dudes in front of these bars and they'd go, see naked women, see naked women. They didn't give a fuck. They wouldn't give a fuck if you were 10. You would go in there, you would sit down and then these women would sit on your lap and then they'd say, okay, honey, we can make out if you buy me a bottle of champagne. Well, they bring them one of those Paul Mooney little bottles of champagne, and they wanted 40 bucks. You're 13. Who's got 40 bucks? And you're like, I ain't got 40 bucks. Get the fuck out of here. But you would go up and down Broadway just feeling little titties and shit just for being 14. Then they had the peep shows where the windows opened, and you could stick your head in, and the chick would let you suck a tip for 60 cents. (laughs) Jesus Christ. And you tell people these stories, and they look at you like, Joey, knock it off. That's why when they did the 7-5, people went crazy. Yeah, that was an interesting show. That was an interesting show. You got to get him on the podcast, Mike Dowd. I'll give you the digits. I'll give you the digits. He's a dynamite dude. But Mike Dowd, you know, people think that was New York. Yeah. That was it. That 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 seven five precinct. That was every fucking precinct. Yeah. That was you know that it was a different world. You know how come gambling at in the in the seventies and eighties was a ticket in New York City, but it was it's a felony in New Jersey, mm. right across the motherfucking bridge. It was programmed, and how what they would do is Mike's got they a don't bank. Let you gamble in New York no, no more. more. Mike's got a bank no on one hundred and eighteenth Street. I'm a cop. I go see Mike every Friday. He gives me $200. But Mike knows that every 90 days, Mike's going to get a phone call and go, Mike, uh, clean out your thing. That means have $2,000 there and have a phone there. So when me and my six cops show up, I handcuff Mike. I take him down to the station. Mike gets a ticket. And then I meet Mike that night. If Mike had two grand in there, I had to give a grand to the other cops. I give a grand back to Mike. And then Mike goes to court in a month, and I tell the cops not to show up, and Mike would go home. It was a scam, and Mike understood it. On top of what he had to pay, every 90 days, you got to take a bust. <laughs> you got to take a bust. That's just the way life is. It was such a, 
It was so fucking corrupt. It was a jungle, man. It was a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder. How it really was. No, and listen, the cops knew the fucking criminals by their first name. By the first name. Yeah. How are you doing today, Mike? It was such a different animal, and to see that and try to describe it to people. It's crazy world. And they people watch, look they watch at you. do crimes. They don't even do anything. I saw you the other day, Mike, snatched that purse. You know, you, know. The, you see politics so now. The, day. the cops are telling you this. Uh, you, you see how politics is now, how people losing their mind and shit like that. I saw corruption growing up. My mom had a bar. Two cops were coming once a week and have a drink, and my mom would give them an envelope, and they would leave. And that was just a part of doing business. We had an attorney in Jersey City, all right? Our, our main attorney, his name was Sam DeLuca. He's retired now. Sam DeLuca was a motherfucker that you walked in there, Mike, and he basically told you, Mike, how you doing? Great to see you, champ. Champ, here's the deal. And Mike, Mike Tyson, you know you know how many times I went in there because the bookmakers my mother hung out with were Cuban, so they would make believe they didn't speak English. So I would always go with them. I would get the day off from school. They'd give me like 100 bucks to go be the interpreter between Sam DeLuca and this guy. And in those days... The late 70s, like this was mid-70s, I'd be like 12. And I'd go down to DeLuca's office, and he'd go, how you doing? How's your mother? Good. And then the guy would sit down, and he'd go, Mike, listen, I just got a call the other day from the DA. They want to give you a year and want you to plead to a simple assault. But for $200,000, I'll get you 90-day probation. for And then they would give you like a menu. For $100,000, you're going to do 90 days. For fifty thousand, you're gonna do one hundred twenty thousand. You're gonna do one hundred twenty days. Call me in a week and let me know what you want to do. That's how simple the system was. You know, only one hour in that motherfucker. One minute. When you get me only. This is a fucking miserable place, Evan. It was such a a thing to see growing up, and now I go to Forty Second Street and I see Olive Garden. Yeah, it's beautiful now. I see Olive Garden Eben, on Forty Second Street. You can't I see, believe it, Eben, what it was that you time. can't really believe a it. Cesspool. It's really wretched. Den of iniquity. You don't know what it's like to to do a line of angel dust <laughs> and <laughs> go into the city in the eighth grade, play hooky, and walk up and down those streets see, as listen, an eighth listen. grader. I, I did angel dust once. I couldn't handle angel dust. I couldn't take no fucking Ugh, angel dust. What is that like? Evan, you know? Evan, Fuck. Evan, but when it, when it, when it wears off, it's not over. It comes back and it hits you again. It comes back and hits you again. Oh, really? It's like a 12-hour like yeah. trip. Fuck. And, back and, and they would call game. it Crystal THC, and they would give it all these different game. names to derail the impact of oh, doing man, Gorilla Evan. Biscuits and Angel, Angel Dust, Dust and, and Zoo stuff. Dust and Horse never Tranquilizer, took it never took it and again. we would smoke it. They also, in those days, used to sell joints with formaldehyde in Ugh. for like 12 bucks. You know how fucked up formaldehyde gets you when you, you smoke put it? it dip oh. it in there. Oh. Oh. So fucked up. Joey, what's it like being a comedian these days in this super sensitive Worry about climate? Mike, you know that before you go into yeah. something, if you don't have a little bit of fear in your Yo, stomach, you, you might as well quit. Fear always has to live there because that fear, you take it, and that's what you turn into your performance. For Mike, it was knocking motherfuckers out, and for me, it's timing precision, focusing on what I have to say. You know, last night I had to go down to the comedy store. 27 years I'm doing comedy. Ten minutes, a kid comes over to me, and he goes, you're up in five minutes. 
And it's like a fucking eternal time bomb. And then you go back to what Mike was saying. I'm following fucking Russell Peters. Not only the guy is a great comic and a gentleman. Is Russell up here somewhere? Somewhere. He was up here. And Theo Vaughn. I'm following Theo Vaughn and Russell Peters. And then it's five minutes before four minutes, and you start thinking about all the bad things you did. You start thinking about, do you deserve this? What the fuck am I doing here? If these people really knew that one time I went into a Carvel and took a chains and got $7 for it, would they still be laughing at my jokes? You know, these people that come up to you after and go, let's take a picture. If they knew that one time you put a gun in somebody's no, waist, that's, that's would the, they still the want to take side. a picture? The dark side these are the all head. the thoughts that come that. into your fucking head. And then with a minute left... New York City comes back into you. Hoboken comes back into me. North Bergen, Union City. And I go, what the fuck am I talking about? Who the fuck am I scared of? Nobody. Slap me loose on that fucking stage. And you I go up there. 100%. You go up there. You, you, you stand your ground. You tell your fucking joke from your stomach through your heart. It passes through. You lay the fucking bomb out. And either they laugh or not. And you jump on them. I got Mike style in the first round. In the main, there's two rooms at the comedy store: the original room and the main room. In the main room, it's more of a theater room. You could come out there. You have to be bigger out there. In the original room, you got to come out like what? What did the biggie say? You got to come every night like Mike Tyson, Jordan, Jackson. Yeah, I feel you. You got to come out like Mike in the fucking original room because it's a smaller ring. And it's fucking uh, bigger gloves. It's two-pound gloves. It's twenty. It's 32-ounce gloves. So you got to come out in the original room because it's small and be bigger. So last night I had to do the main room. Then the original room I had to follow Ali Wong, Rogan, you know. So that fear, you need that fear. I, li- I don't like that doubt when it comes into my mind, Mike. That shit fucks with me a little bit. I ain't going to lie to you. That doubt. Fucks with me a we little bit. We all have bit. it, though. We all have that. But doubt. I always have that doubt because of my past. Should I be doing this if these people only knew? But it doesn't matter. It's like I wrote the other night in the caption. doesn't matter where you start. is where you finish. Yeah, it's only in our own sick head that we think we're trash. In my fucking sick head it's every day, dog, I think I'm a piece of shit. And I am. And I no, was. No, you're not. But I, I work towards being... A better motherfucker every day along the way, especially the last 11 years. This is what I learned um, all my years. Really, I learned the piece of shit can't be redeemed. You're not a piece of shit. Well, thank you, brother. Trust, not real. Trust me. All my life, I it thought the same, but you, a piece of shit can't be redeemed, brother. He's writing for the rest of his life. Just the way he is. How does it feel now, um, you know, you being who you are, you getting that fucking pussy of these beautiful girls coming out of the blue now. How does that feel? That must be a trip, right? Because I, I always thought I was an ugly motherfucker. And then when I started getting these beautiful girls, supermodels, or actresses and all that, I said, fuck, they really like me. And I forget, they, you know, I have fucking an asshole full of money. But in my mind, I believe that these people could really like my ugly ass. You know? Like, it's funny. I, I, don't, I, don't put, I don't put that vibe out. And I get it once in a while on the road or something, and I see the move coming. Like, I have a rule, and I've had a rule for years. A motherfucker don't come into my hotel room. 
I don't even like men room. in my hotel room. You want to come over, so I'll meet in the hallway. Guys like you and I, we grew up in a house where there was no peace. I used to watch these white shows on TV, The Waltons, fucking John John. Fam- Family <laughs> John Affair, <laughs> and I couldn't wait to have a house like that, and it never happened for me. And now today, I have that fucking house. Incredible. It's not a big house. I don't even own the motherfucker. What I'm trying to tell you is my home is what I wanted as a child. There's no yelling. There's no screaming. Nobody's yelling at 8.30 in the morning. There's no hot water left. There's no anger in my house. I got cats. I got a six-year-old. I talk to my wife in a certain tone. She speaks to me in that tone. My wife was there with me. I put my wife in such a fucking financial hole when we were dating that she took out a loan for me that I had to pay back $636 a month for six years. And I paid it back after I got off the cocaine. So by me trying to fucking get a piece of pussy, I need my wife too much. I need this little six-year-old girl too much. I did that shit. And that's already. how I feel in my life now, too. The stage of my I life did this shit already. I got my dick sucked. And what did it get me? Divorced. Disease. Some shit. I got a 30-year-old daughter that won't talk to me, Mike Tyson. That's my biggest fear. 30-year-old daughter fear. that won't talk to me, Mike Tyson. That's my biggest fear. How do you think I fucking walk around? 30 years, she won't talk to me. God knows what the mother told her. Whatever I'm doing now doesn't justify it. And you know what? At this point in the game... What would it do if we talked? It would just bring up bad memories for her and me and the mother. And you know what? My house, dog, is is all those, the Dick Van Dyke show. My house is the Dick Van Dyke show. The worst thing that happens in my house is I smoke pot in my bathroom in the back. Or I watch Narcos and I let her watch it with me, the six-year-old. So she brushes up on her Spanish. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what I could do without my children. They were mad. Like, at, at, uh, at one stage in my life, um, when I finished fighting, kids didn't have a good relationship with me. I used to fight with their mother all the time, cheat on all the time. So um, they really never got a chance to like, get to know me until they got older, in the, like 19 and 20. They're adults. They're finishing college. And all the, so I started developing a relationship with them, and it's the best thing that I've ever done, and I would hate to lose that again. You know, I just things I don't say because, you know, they're real liberal. <coughs> I have some kids that are real liberal, and, you know, you can't say the right thing. You got to be politically correct. You can't say the word midget or some shit like that or a, a gay or something, a fag or something. You can't say those things around my daughter who I love, and I, just, I don't care. If that's that's all I have to do for her to love me and care about me, I'm not going to say that as those words. You know, that's just the way it is. I, I, think, I couldn't take that. Feel. I feel like, like I couldn't breathe when I wasn't... Um, when I didn't have a relationship with my children, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I just I couldn't oh, I couldn't deal with that feeling. I don't know. I think I'm a sucker at my age now. I don't even know why do I need to be friends with them. I say, but I used to just I have to have them. I, I you know I, I I battle with those feelings. I said, what the fuck? I'm the father. They should be having a relationship with me. I'm the dad that put them on the mother, sent them to college that they want to go to that educate them to be all snooty the way they are with me. I, you know, I say that sometimes, but it just um, it doesn't work that way. You know, you got to bow down sometimes, give up. You know, if you want to be in their lives, or somebody else will be in their lives. You're a beautiful man. I'm happy I came down here today, man. We're happy that you came. Big man. time, man. I'm, You're the man, I'm brother. Motherfuckers off. 
Joey, thank you so much, dude. Thank you. Yeah, for having really me. awesome. So awesome yeah, to have you, brother. I'm come back, if you please. Guys don't mind. Please do. That'd be we'll so do awesome. Two hours I really appreciate. Thank you, brother. I feel you. Thank you for what you've done. So how, so how many views you get on your podcast? We saw your stuff. You getting three million, four million, all that stuff. I don't fucking know, man. You don't know. I'm just learning how to I'm, find this stuff out. What's your pod called again, Joey? The Church of What's Happening Now. Yes, the Church, Church of, of What's, what's Happening got, Now. Degenerates on fucking Netflix. You know, I'm out there. Hell yeah, brother. What's the Degenerates? It's a, it's a series they did at Netflix. Hopefully yeah. they'll do it again and I'll be a part of it or something. Nice, man. Netflix. Thank you for having me, guys. Netflix Thank is you. kicking ass out here, huh? Yeah. yeah. Netflix is kicking fucking ass, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks, brother. Thank you for having me. Good luck to everybody here. Much love. You too, time. brother. Thank you so Lots much. Lots of love. Thank Thanks. You, Thank you. All right, everybody. Mike, great show, man. Man, thank you, Evan, man. Uh, this is the awesome guest that we had here. And, um, awesome. What can I say? Hey, this is another um, conclusion of Hot Boxing. I'm Mike Tyson. And I'm Evan Britton. I'm Joey Diaz. And we're out. Stay black. Peace. Oh, I got to pee.